may also available on six other different platform distributions. Live from North York, Ontario, Canada, I am your hostess, Reverend Maria Arbanity. And right out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, our very special guest with us here today, Boy Kodak. <laughs> hello, hello. Hello, hello. How are you, my friend? I'm good, how are you? Yes, I, it's been a while since uh, when we first officially met back in 2019, around March. It was uh, Fantasy Farms. I remember oh, yes. there, yes. Yes, yes, that was, that was great. Yes, that was one of our last last big events I can remember before we were all uh, locked away. Right. Um, folks, um, this is Boyd Kodak. And this episode, I believe it's episode number 32, is upcoming musical, his upcoming musical, and transgender diversity inclusion. For those of you who do not know, um, Boyd Kodak was born in London, England, March 18, 1954, as Jan Waterman. Boyd is a transsexual man who has set two legal precedents that have made Canadian history and worldwide news headlines. He is an award-winning musician, songwriter, filmmaker, curator, festival director, writer, event producer, programmer, human rights activist, and chair of the Toronto Trans Alliance. Boyd grew up with a sister and came from a Jewish lineage. At the age of three, Watermans immigrated to Canada. His family, who all fought in World War II, also taught him the importance of standing up for what he believes in and being able to hear and play most instruments by ear. He was chosen to be given extracurricular classical musical training at the age of nine by age 13 he was performing as a percussionist with orchestras symphonies and various bands in a variety of styles prior to transitioning back in 1993 uh, waterman versus national life he set an ontario human rights commission precedent referred to in the Human Rights Code and teaching materials in that of Ontario. It's referred to as the beginning of lesbian and gay history in Canada. During his transitioning years in the mid-90s, he became involved with uh, trans in the media. He played a large role in changing the lesbian and gay community to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, plus community. Boyd became the first trans person invited onto the programming committee of a LGBTQ plus festival and curated numerous trans programs for festival, festivals worldwide. He was the 
educational of the continuing counting past two, uh, TS, transsexual, uh, IS, uh, transgendered festival 99-2002. Boyd has been involved in producing nine shorts for the festival circuit and 45 broadcast segments on LGBTQ plus life. He also co-produced the graphic novel, A Not-So-Fairy Toxic Tale. He is a recipient of the Proud Hero and 2011 Inspire Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2012, was inducted into the International Lesbian Gay uh, Transgender Formation of a Transgender Committee that helped Toronto Police Services to revise all policies, procedures, and training regarding trans people. This became Boyd's second historical human rights victory. It's hoped that the framework of this unique undertaking will become the prototype for other organizations to come worldwide. The first completed stage of this massive project was shared in a town hall presented by the Chief of Police on January 19th and March 23rd of this year, 2022. Boyd will be one of the inductees into the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, plus Walk of Heroes Monument, currently being built in Toronto. His favorite quote is, everything happens for a reason, and here to share with us and from his many creative aspirations that involve writing and recording music and his upcoming musical. A columnist writer of Buzz Magazine, here with us today, Boyd Kodak. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow, that sounds like a busy, uh, busy time. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So what yeah. is this upcoming, what is this upcoming musical? Uh, can you inundate us and, and maybe give us some, some you know, uh, <laughs> news <laughs> on that? Okay, well, the musical is um, uh, something I've been in, working on for quite some time now. The music itself is pretty much written now, so it's, it's just a matter of um, filling in the in-between parts. And it's basically going to be a musical about... Um, my wild and crazy life because it has been indeed one packed filled uh, wild and crazy life but I have managed to accomplish some some good things that will um, continue on long long after for here and ever after let's hope so okay. so yeah so it's like there's you know you gave the short synopsis so like I said there's 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 a lot of, a lot of interesting things I've I've uh, encountered in my time is it okay that you reveal a little bit more like give us a little bit of a preview like what is the name of this musical is it okay that you do that and when would it be well, looking forward to seeing it okay well the, the name is something I, I'm I, it's probably going to be no greater love but I'm not quite sure yet um, and that's going to apply to a few different things like you know the traditional kind of love and love of ourselves and oh you know um, being transsexual is, is it's 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 quite a different experience than than I would say most people have in life because um, we experience something called gender dysphoria, which means that we don't like ourselves, we don't like our bodies, we don't like the way we look. So, so transitioning is more than just a physical state; it's also a very um, emotional, mental state of you know becoming 
one with who you are and learning how to love yourself again sort of thing or love yourself at all sort of you know so um so so yeah so when so when i say no greater love it's going to be about you know all different kinds of love and um uh, it's going to start when i was i guess uh when i was about Oh, three and a half, I guess. First time that I realized that um, I was different. Like I was, you know, really different than the other people in it, that, that, you know, my friends and my family. And actually, what happened was I was um, I was outside. We had moved to Canada by now. We had just gotten here, and I was. It was summertime, and I was. It was really hot, and I was outside playing with some friends. And my mom called me, and she was so mad. And she was screaming at me, you get in here right now. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, all I'm doing is just out of your plan, you know. And uh, she said, what are you doing outside like that? And I said, oh, I'm just playing, Mom. And she said, you don't have a shirt on. And I said, oh, Mom, none of us guys have shirts on. It's too hot today. And she grabbed me and she said, you're not a guy. And I said, pardon? And she said, no, you're not a boy. And that was the first time that it, it, it like, you know, that I was conscious of the fact that, I, as I said, until then I thought I was a boy, um, and that's when I realized I was different. And oh, and it's a belief, it's unbelievable how much you can not like yourself at three and a half years old because that's not who you are. You know, it's 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 a strange. It's, so, that, so it's going to be a lot about that, and that's probably how it's going to start, because that's kind of how, how it all started with me. And um, and then it'll progress from there to, you know, how I lived my life for many years and and the boxes I tried to fit myself into to, to, to compensate for the way I was feeling. Um, I didn't understand what the world, when I was three and a half, I knew I was different, but I didn't understand what the word transsexual was. I didn't understand what the word homosexual was, gay, lesbian. You know, I knew we had somebody in the family that, that you know, my dad used to laugh about and joke about, you know, oh, yeah, they used to go down to that place there, there. Uh, but other than that, I mean, you know, I, I do nothing um, until I was actually, I guess I was about 13 years old. Uh, do you remember Pierre Burton? No, not really. You don't remember Pierre Burton? Oh, I'm so surprised. I thought you would for sure. Um, Pierre Burton used to do, he, he was a Canadian. Um, I think one of the first Canadians to to run his own talk show. Um, he used, I think he was originally on radio. Then he went to TV, and he used to interview all kinds of people all over the place. And um, I know a strange thing for a kid to like, but for some reason, I, I just found him really, really interesting. And um, um, I was in school, and we had to do a project on uh, famous Canadians. So I picked Pierre Burton, and ended up watching a ton of Pierre Burton shows, and. Who did he have on but this um, woman who, this was, oh my God, a long, long time ago, when we're talking like probably in the 60s, 70s, a woman, uh, what was her name, Christine Jorgensen, do you remember ever hearing of that name? Okay. And she was, she was a tennis player that right, was a male yes. originally, that became a female tennis player. Yes. Okay. So, and, so, and I said that was long, so that was the first time where it actually even heard the word and kind of you know, identified with with someone that was that uh, you know was somewhat you know going through the same feelings that I thought I was going through. So um, 
so yeah, so um, you know, if that'll, that'll get into that. Of course, I didn't do anything about it at that time. It was just like that was the first time I realized sort of things, and you know, things started to become apparent to me. Um, um, I knew I liked women from, from day one, so I actually lived as a lesbian for many, many years, and that's where I fought my first human rights case. It was for, uh, um, was at that time, again, I filed that in 1988. Back then, there was no uh, LGBTQ plus community. There was an LNG community, you know? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a second cup of the steps, yeah. And uh, everywhere and everything was LNG. There was no trans services, no, you know, not, we don't buy nothing. I mean, um, I was actually, when I decided, when I decided, when I actually, I was like, took me till, till I was 40 years old, believe it or not, um, to actually start my transition. Part of it was for um, health reasons. I told you I was born with lupus. And part of it was because of just family pressures. My families were... My family was just so against anything out of the alternative. Like even becoming a musician, when I was uh, jumping back to when I, as I said, when I was, uh, you mentioned when I was um, a child and they discovered I had this musical ability to hear all these instruments. Um, I was in grade about three, I guess. They called my parents to the school and suggested that I be put into a special school to be trained to be a conductor because I could hear all the different instruments in my head. And they said that that's something that, you know, a, a conductor would be the, like the perfect job for me. So um, they brought, as I said, they brought my parents in and we had, they had discussions with them and da, 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 And my parents just wouldn't go for it. They were like, you know what? We fought so hard during the war. My mom left school and like she left school in grade four was put in the factories to make, you know, clothing for the soldiers and like all of my family, every single one of them had one job or another. And as far as they were concerned, um, it was just too high risk. They wanted me to get a nice, safe office job. Right. And yeah, so they wouldn't support it. At, at first they allowed me to go to, um, like I said, I was taken out to a lot of extracurricular activities from a very young age I was you know teachers would pick me up at school we would go to different venues and see different orchestras and you know, make different musicians and such um, so they would they allowed me to do that but beyond that um, they you know when I, when I really wanted to get into like you know junior high school after junior high and in high school I wanted to get into some really <clears throat> you know more intense musical training they they uh, they didn't want to support that. They wanted me to go and be a secretary and work in, a, in an office and, and have a full-time job. But, you know, from their standpoint, they wanted security for me. So I can understand that, but it was difficult. I kind of resonate to that because my mother, too, was a seamstress. And she did that on the side. She had her own little, you know, tailoring kind of... She was really good on the sewing machine. I still have it now. And uh, she used to do this. Uh, you know, the Germans would come in. And she would, you know, the she actually fell in love with one of them too. Uh, yeah, 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 one of the generals, and and uh, they had tobacco too. But she used to do that for them. That's what they used to do back then. And, oh yeah. And, and as as you were saying, um, yeah. So it's like, and and how about the where does this musical um, 
fit in. Does any of your family have any of that background, or you just out of nowhere have these gifts and, and talent? Well, there was years ago, on, on, well, at least one side of my family I know for sure, um, that being my mother's side, and again, that being part of her reasoning for not me not wanting to do it. My grandfather was in vaudeville, and um, he became involved with the typical lifestyle of, of, you know, a lot of drinking and a lot of gambling. And my grandmother would work so hard and, you know, to make money and put bread on the table. She ran a rashi, her own little general store, and um, and he would just gamble it all away. So my mother also saw that as being a, a negative, which, of course, you know, that's a lifestyle choice, um, but associated that with him being a talented working in, working in the arts. So, so, yeah, I definitely know that that there was talent on that side and whenever my family got together they would like they would pull out all kinds of you know combs and, and wax paper and spoons and and you know pots and pans and they would be playing instruments on everything and making music on all kinds of things so okay. definitely there had to be some some uh rhythm yeah so yeah some something coming through the the, the family line is there yeah for sure and what yeah. about your sister? How did your sister take to all of this? How did you fit in with your sister? Did you get along at all? How, how was the relationship between you and your sister? My sister and I, we had a, um, uh, we did get along, but we were five years apart. So we had very, very different tastes. Um, you know, like uh, uh, she would like at lunchtime, we come home from school, and she would want to watch something like Jeopardy, something intellectual. And I still want to watch cartoons, so you know, or I love Lucy Show or something funny. So, so we always had we were different in that in those sort of ways. My my sister is very, very, very brilliant person, um, and um, yeah, we always got along and loved each other. But we had very, very, very different tastes, very different lifestyles, but. Um, um, I remember her constantly always being there and always being a part of my life and I'll you so she was yeah it was you know some like all kids I mean all, I'm sure all, all, all um, you know brothers and sisters fight at times but um, when it came to the music and stuff she she exactly she what happened was I was I, I left school um, when I was in high school and I wanted as I said I wanted to go further um, in, a, in a musical venue. My parents didn't want me to do that. They wanted me to go into business course, so I just said no, I'm not doing that, and I quit. I quit school. I quit everything. I, I was uh, playing drums at the time, uh, percussion, and so I just went got into a band and went on the road for a few years. Just started playing music around everywhere. Um, and um, i trying to think where I was going with that with Yeah, you had, you had the, you, you, what year was it that you dropped out of school? I didn't know that. Oh, what? yeah, yeah, that was like in the 70s. Oh, I mean, like, what, what year? Did you have high school? I dropped out yeah. of school. <laughs> yeah, I dropped out of high school. Actually, what happened was um, I had a music teacher in high school, and music, I always got like 95, 98, 99. It was just like a breeze for me. Cause like just, I can hear it, so I could just play it. Um, but I hated theory because 
it slowed me down. I didn't want to take the time to learn it because I didn't need to. I could hear it. It was, you know, when you're a kid, and when you're a kid, you're not, you know, they're not that well disciplined. And I, there was nobody disciplining me because nobody wanted me to do it. So, um, other than, of course, my teachers wanted me to learn theory. So I would kind of skip over the theory, as, as, you know. And so um, it was it was in my last year of, of high school, grade 12, I guess. And um, she, yeah, and it was my last term, my second last term, I guess, yeah. And, um, she said to me, okay, well, I've decided that this term, I'm going to make your mark be 90% on theory. And I said, oh, come on, you know, like, I thought she was just joking because we'd always gotten along really good in the past. I mean, belonged to every single band that we could possibly play for. And, you know, I was constantly busy working for in the music department. And uh, she failed me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was so upset. So I said, okay, that's it. You know what? And so between that um, and my parents, I said, you know what, that's it, I, I, I'm done. So, you know, I was a kid, yeah. eight, 17 and a half, 18 years old, and I just took off and went on the road thinking that, you know, I didn't need anything else. And what happened was I played and played and played and I was doing really, really well. And then my parents, of course, were still, you know, no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do this. So my sister happened to be working at a company um, at the time. And um, she said, you know what, I can get you a job as a file clerk. And then at least you'll have something else on, you know, on a resume to fall back on sort of thing. So. Um, I did, I agreed to do that, and I agreed to do it for uh, three months initially. And so my parents were like, okay, three to six months, it's okay, three to six months, not now, okay? Wow. Just so that, you know, I have something under my belt. What happened was, as, um, as I mentioned before, I had lupus. Um, after a few months on the job, I started feeling really awful. And yeah. I couldn't figure out what was going on, I couldn't move, my all swollen, I was like a balloon. Um, my temperature went up to 104. They took me to the hospital. They said, Oh my god, like we don't know what's going on. It's, it's some kind of septic disease or something. And it turned out that it was lupus. And it came out like just in, with a, you know, in a rampage. And I actually had subsequently had heard that it is not uncommon that when you go from doing a job that is very physical, which drumming, of course, is very physical, you know, not in, in the fact that, you know, you're performing every night, moving all your hands and legs, plus you're picking up your equipment, moving from job to job, it's a lot of work, um, to a very sedate job, which filing, you're sitting at a desk doing, you know, um, that it often will be a time when a disease presents itself, and, of course, the fact that I wasn't happy, and again, when you're not happy, quite often, it's a time when disease presents itself. So that's what happened. So um, I got really, really sick. I actually spent the first uh, six months, I guess, in bed. And um, then I kind of went between flare-up permission, flare-up permission, flare-up permission. So I ended up staying working at that company, believe it or not, for 25 years. Um, but I, of course, not at the filing clerk. I, I, it was. I found that 
you know, I would sit there and I would get bored doing my job filing, so I would read. Well, when I read, I would read all the company materials, which was like a financial insurance company, so I was reading policies and all kinds of, you know, underwriting manuals and very boring, boring stuff. But basically, I taught myself everything there, um, and I ended up becoming vice president. So, um, so yeah, so, so that turned into a 25-year job. Vice President, um, Vice President, can you disclose that? Or what, uh, mm -hmm. yeah? oh, well, for various companies, actually. I started out, um, the company I originally started out, like I worked up slowly, I went to you know, supervisor, manager, um, and what, you want to know the name of the companies that I worked yeah, for? Yeah, is that okay? I, oh, yeah, I worked for many, many companies. When I first started out, I worked for a company that was called... Um, Union Mutual, but I don't even think they exist oh, anymore. insurance companies. They were all insurance companies. Okay. They were insurance, financial, annuities, okay. you know, all that sort of different, that vein of things where, yeah, to do with, uh, yeah, finance. Because I did risk assessments and underwriting, policy writing and marketing and you name it. I just kind of did a bit of everything sort of thing. What I'm and, what I'm thinking here is how tough it must have been for you to be dressed in a in a in a woman's attire, oh, like a skirt or a dress, and your that hair was, up, and oh, oh, what is that? Well, no, I refused to do that. See that, and that's where my first I, that's where my first human rights claim came in. Um, as I said, when I was uh, when I left school, at seventeen and a half, and, and went on the road. That's also when I discovered my my my. Well, as I said, I always knew I liked women, but I had no idea what that meant. Um, we didn't get the education in schools like kids get nowadays. So uh, the first thing I had, uh, first time I had ever even heard the word lesbian was at a uh, school play. And I had a friend, actually, a, um, who, a, a, a woman friend of the girl we were you know, like 10, 11, 12, 13 at the time, um, who we used to be girlfriends sort of thing. Um, and she happened to be in the play, and she played, it was called uh, The Children's Hour. Have you heard of that story? It's about uh, the two women teachers. Oh, yes, uh, I loved it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very much. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so she played the, the lesbian woman teacher in it. And it... I, I went to the, the theater the night, it was like a school play, saw her in the play, and then all of a sudden everything kind of like, oh my goodness, um, that describes what I've been doing, what we've been doing. So, um, so okay, I kind of realized, okay, so I came out basically at that, at that time, and um, when I was working in the insurance companies, I, I was always out. I mean, I, I'm... I'm a, I'm one of these people. I, 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 you know, I wear my my heart on my on my sleeve, sort of thing. If, if I'm thinking something, you pretty much know it. Um, I'm not very good at keeping secrets or telling fibs or, or you know, keeping it real. Living, living yeah, living a, a life that, that doesn't feel like me. So, so even at the insurance company, as I was actually quite well known, I used to wear. Um, I used to dress very nicely, of course, but I used to wear pants and again and. But I always wore cowboy boots. I had a cowboy boot fetish. And, um, but like I said, I had virtually, like in, in most of the companies I worked for, so I went to, uh, it was Union Mutual, and then it became Constellation, and then it became, oh, Cigna, and Paul Revere, um, oh my goodness, Mutual of Omaha. I, I also ended up consulting because I became such an expert in what I did 
that other companies wanted that particular knowledge. Um, I specialized in, in something called long-term disability, which is kind of ironic considering I ended up becoming long-term disabled. Um, but I, I developed um, a rehabilitation um, program, which was very new in the industry at the time, that focused on instead of just giving people money, which, you know, of course you give people money if you need it, but helping people to rebuild their lives, and but not just like the standard thing, like they were, you know, there was one fellow that invented a game and we ended up, you know, helping him and trying to help get him funded and get him marketed. And sure enough, he was successful, and he, you know, he, he lived off of it for, you know, so, like, good stories. Like, not not rehabilitating people to the point where, you know, they were, you know, sick and had to get up and, and you know, dig a, a ditch each day, but trying to find things that would help people to move on with their lives, and, you know, better themselves if they wanted to, rather than just sit around and feel disabled, because that's not a good feeling. Um... So, so I ended up consulting for many, many different companies. In fact, sometimes two or three, two or three competing companies at the same time. Not, I wouldn't share their information amongst them, but you know, I would be bringing them all different information. So, um, um, so because I, and because I was really good at my job, I was I was wanted. So it was rare rare that anybody would even care about how I dressed or how I looked at the time as long as I did my job and that's what you know they wanted they wanted their, their numbers their books turned around um, so um, I ended up working for one company and it was called National Life and I was um, hired by a fellow and um, who himself was, was a gay man but he was very very closeted and he told me the, the people that own this company, or in particular the the, the um, president of the company, is, is extremely homophobic. So you know, um, I don't even you know. So you're on your own. I said, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm I'm me, and that's just the way it is. And I'm also a very friendly person. And this was a large company. There was like over 200 people that worked there, and about a dozen of them were were gay and lesbian people, right, men and women. So. Um, they had their own lunchroom and in their own cafeteria where you go sit and eat your lunch or buy your lunch or whatever. So um, I would talk to everybody because I said I'm a friendly kind of person. So I would ended up, you know, talking to this one and talking to that one, and we all became friends. And so there was a group of us, maybe you know a dozen of us, and um, if we had lunch together, we would sit in the lunchroom together and, you know, just hang out. We were buddies. Sometimes we'd get together after work, you know. You do that when you work at places like you, you form friend groups. Well, um, none, none of these people either had ever been to any of the, um, Chris, or any of the Christmas dances or, or uh, company functions. Yeah. So, and everybody wanted to go. And I said, look, you know what? Let's go. Let's all go together, right? We can prove there's enough of us. We can have our own table. You know, we won't. We were, we were polite. We, were, we didn't do anything abnormal that anybody else wouldn't do. Like, you know, we were just friends, right? It wasn't like we were sitting there making out on the tables or anything like that. And um, so we decided we were going we to book a, a table at the Christmas dance. Well, I get a phone call that I'm to... Uh, report to the um, the president's office, right? And by this time, I was vice president. Um, but, but there was more than one vice president. Um, there was like you know, there's life insurance, and there's group insurance, and there's health insurance. And, 
like you said, there's all different men. There's annuities and financial aid. So there's all different categories and um, in the company where there's you no know, different. And each one of those had their own vice president. So I get called down to the, to the president's office, and I get told that um, I'm to um, make I'm, I'm to disperse this little group of friends that I've put together. We're allowed. They don't mind if gay and lesbian work at the company as long as they sit at their desks and don't talk to anyone else and do not um, commit, um, socialize on company time with other with other people. And that we were not welcome to come to the Christmas dance, <laughs> and, and that I was to make sure that everyone was not to be told that. And that then just to prove the point, like just to make sure that this these twelve people really knew that they were, you know, they were to, um, you know, no, no longer engage in any kind of friendship activity. They wanted me to pick one and fire them. And I said, for what? What would I be firing them for? And they said, doesn't matter. Just pick one, you know, just to prove that we're really serious about this. And I said, no, I, I you know, I won't. I won't disband the group. I won't tell them they can't come to the party. And no, and I will not fire anyone. So I left. I went back up to my office. And sure enough, within 10 to 15 minutes, two big security guards came to escort me out of the building. And, um, and I was fired. And um, so um, now this fellow, as I said, this president, was, um, he was a very... Um, very rude person. Like he would go around say, like <clears throat> he would come into a, an area where I was working and go like, somebody break a cheap bottle of brute cologne around here or something. It smells like a brute. Oh. Yeah, like just really, really rude stuff like that. Oh. You know? Yeah. So, um, so as I said, so I ended up, I left the job and I filed my first human rights complaint. Um, and it was now by this point. The, the human rights code had been changed to include protection for gay and lesbians, but the, there had never been a case challenged. As a lesbian, that, were you a yeah. woman at the time? Jack? Yes, I was. I was this. I was still living as a woman at that time. Um, so, um, but and as I said, I was dressing in pants to this, and a jacket. I always looked really nice, but you know, I didn't wear skirts. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I ended up filing against them, and that became the, um, the, uh, the Human Rights Commission ended up uh, joining my case, which they do um, uh, very rarely. The, the Human Rights Commission do have their own set of lawyers, and if a complaint comes their way that they feel is valid enough, um, or they want to get behind it, they, they ask to join the case, and they, they come on board with you. So it's not just you fight, it's not just you against the person that you're suggesting committed the offense, it's the commission is also agreeing that. And then you go to what's called a, a human rights tribunal, where there's another set of officials that review everything and you have a full trial and stuff. So, um, yeah, so as I said, so that was in 19, I started in 1988. Um, it took five years, it was a longer process in that time, and it was, yeah, 1993, they finally, uh, they went through a full trial and, um, and luckily, thankfully, you know, people were honest. I was really worried for a while because, I mean, 
it's the sort of thing where it's a lot of hearsay and you know how how do you prove that sort of thing but um yeah fortunately i you know people decided that when push came to shove they were going to be honest and people that heard this fellow make comments to me like you know where's that cheap clone root clone and you know other comments that he would make that would be very rude like that um yeah these people told told the truth and and we won we won a, you know, a great victory because once that once that came through as i said because it was the very first case that ever challenged the law it becomes part of the code and it became part of uh, what they call teaching human rights in ontario it became a test case so there's a whole course built around that case um and it, you know it's, as you mentioned, it's, it's referred to um, in a number of places on the internet as the beginning of our, our legal history in Canada because it's it's first recorded actual you know legal history that we that we won we won something and after that every employer knew that if, hey if I try to fire somebody or you know discriminate against somebody because they're gay or lesbian I'm going to get wrapped by you know by the commission so, so here so, we have. Um, I have here an article by the Junos, June 8, 2016, transgender man forced into clothes and jail for women settles with Toronto police. Is that, that's another one you're going to talk that's about? That's my second case, yes. Yeah. So oh, basically, okay. the first case was um, called Waterman versus National Life, and that was, um, okay. that was a, yeah, yeah, that was, that was for, uh, as I said, again, like, living as a lesbian but it, you know they call it lb they still call it lgbtq plus rights now um so that was yeah so that was that case then um then all kinds of life happened in between and then i transitioned and in i had an incident in 2012 actually where um, where was this I, I remember there was something going on at the pussy palace and it was a huge oh that was 2000 when was that i don't even remember <laughs> Yeah, that was, um, were you part of that one or? No, no, it wasn't oh, part okay. of that. No, 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 that, that was, um, that, that was also a big, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been well known in Toronto for years and years and years and years that there's been, you know, a lot of, um, trans profiling going on. There used to be a saying in Toronto, uh, oh, I heard you, I heard you had an interaction with the police last night. Yes, what happened? Oh, I was caught walking down the street while being trans like virtually nothing you know um but that's how bad it used to be um so i at this point i um i, I have a, um, a a small cabin outside of toronto i was out there and it's very rural it's very dark at three o'clock in the morning i get banging banging on my door and I go to the door, and it's the police, and they tell me I'm under arrest. And I actually started to laugh because I thought that's so ridiculous. I mean, this must be a joke. I'm if people that know me know that I'm um, I'm not I'm aggressive if it comes to something like I'm fighting for a point for a lot of people, like the human rights issues. But I'm not. But you know, I'm I'm a very um, laid back person when it comes to like you know. You know, as far as fighting for myself or anything, that you know, 
it's not like me at all. Um, so, yes, so, the, so I was, as I said, I actually laughed because I thought, well, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. You know, I, I, I don't even have a ticket, let alone go do anything illegal. And um, they took me anyway. And what happened was, I'm, I'm completely transsexual, which means I've had surgeries, I've had frontal hormones, um, and all my ideas changed, says male. Um, they decided that they were going to consider me female anyway. And so they put me in a female holding center and they made me wear women's clothes and oh my God, just horrible things they did to me, the things they said to me. Um, uh, and so I had a cell phone, of course, at the time in 2013, we all had cell phones and my battery had run out of charge and they said, oh, and I, at this time I owned two houses. I owned Gypsy Studios, which we talked about, mentioned, I think, before that I had, I used to own a, no, we didn't talk about that yet. I used to own a studio as well. Um, after, after I left, okay, so I spent 25 years jumping back to the insurance job and all that vice president and all that you know office work i did that for 25 years and then i got even sicker the lupus got really bad and got into my liver and started and i started throwing blood clots so i couldn't work at all so that would have been that would have been 92 so again i spent like two about two years at least two years um pretty much bedridden um hospitalized and out of the hospital and uh they that point in 94 they said that i would have five years that would be it five years and that would, uh, between my liver and my blood clotting things that were going on in my body i wouldn't make it past five years i was also told that i'd be in a wheelchair by the time i was 40 and that was like when i when i was like in my 20s or 30s yeah you know but but like i said when all the stupid stuff started happening so, um, but I'm so determined, and even now my doctors say, you know, you don't even know how you can stand up. To look at an x-ray, you find, looks like a, a letter C, you know, becoming the letter S, and how do you stand up? It's impossible, but it's amazing what your mind can do when, when, when you just insist upon it and, and, and call upon it and, you know, pray upon it to, to, to do things that you really want to do. What you're describing here is a lot to do with metaphysical spirituality. And Absolutely. my gosh, what you've been through. You're like, uh, you know, one of our best fighters out there. And Athena proud. Yeah, that's kind of where I get back to everything happens for a reason. Because when this happened to me in 2012, I thought, oh my God, this is the most ridiculous scenario. You know, here I am, like I said, one of the most clean-cut person you'd ever want to meet, being charged with a crime that's absolutely ridiculous I wouldn't even consider. I, I, I catch spiders and flies and put them outside because I don't want to hurt anything, right? And, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, and, okay, so they, my cell phone was, was out of charge, and at the time I owned two houses, one being a full audio-video studio and this other cabin which is at a private lake just outside of Toronto. Um, and they would not release me on my own recognizance. Even though I had, like I said, I had that, I had you know, like all, you know, all kinds of other stuff and um, never, never had any kind of problems with the police before, but no, they wouldn't release me on my own recognizance. Um, 
they also were stopped giving me my medication and I started feeling really sick and I was begging them, you know, by the third, second, third day, you know, uh, oh, they, my phone, my phone ran out and they said, well, we're going to have to call a relative or a friend to come and get you because we're, they're not going to release you on your own cognizance. So I couldn't, um, I couldn't remember my cousin's phone number because everything's so digital nowadays, we depend so much on it. If you don't realize how how quickly you forget, you know, someone's phone number. So um, for three days, and they took me to four different places, nobody had a phone book. None of them had a phone book. None of them had a computer. None of them had a, a way to look up my cousin's phone number. I had her name, of course, her address. All they had to do was special treatment. And yet they yeah. assaulted you. They harassed they you. They traumatized yeah. you. They threatened you. And what about yeah. all the psychological damage they've done oh, to you? Unbelievable. Um, the things they did to me, I mean, basically, they, they determined on the back end now that it amounts to sexual assault. Um, uh, being trans, trans, transsexual, um, some of our body parts are not the same, and we also, some of us have um, uh, prosthetic parts, and they were just ruthless. I mean, you know, God forbid if somebody had, like, I compared it, like, if somebody came in there and had, like, a, a prosthetic arm, would you remove it from them in a group full of people? Hold it up and pass it around the group. Oh my and God! Looking at it like, what's that? Post-traumatic like, stress. Oh, you should know better. God. I, I was, I've been in therapy for so many years. Oh, uh, I even gave up on that, and I thought, okay, I've got to take myself over now and just, you know, enough's enough, sort of thing. Wow. But they did me horrific. They add damage, and I mean, because here I was, I had a full. I hadn't shaved for three days, so I was all hairy. Well, my voice, of course, is different. You have to call out any time you go to the washroom and you need toilet paper. You have to ask for it. So here I am with my voice yelling out, can I have some toilet paper, please? And the women are all yelling, you know, where's that? Where's that? You know, where's that the guy over there? You know, and then they would take me through the halls and people would be screaming at me hey, what are you anyway what the f were you born what's in your pants even police officers were saying stuff like that to me i mean it was just unbelievable i was told i wasn't allowed to have men in jail because you're not you don't deserve medication in jail and i could feel myself getting sicker and sicker and i diagnosed them, okay please take me to the hospital because i'm really sick you know you guys you guys giving me my med which is life-saving med i take every day and um so they finally took me to um, another place that had a nurse. And the nurse looked at me and did some blood tests, and she just went. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and she called, she called the emergency doctor right away. Um, so, yeah, it was, just, it was just the most insane, ridiculous um, you know, event to take place. And the charges were withdrawn, but... What I was put through in the process will never be withdrawn. Um, so as a result of that, and I know that I'm not the first, the first, first and the first transsexual person or transgender person to have had negative encounters with police. Um, I, you know, I've, I've heard lots and lots of horror stories about other people as well. So, um, so I decided, okay. Again, everything happens for a reason, and you know there has to be something that comes out of this 
that turns positive and it's become more positive than I could even possibly imagine at the time. Police have done such um, an incredible amount of work. I did I did file a complaint against them for for uh, their behavior towards transgender and transsexual people, and uh, it I filed in 2013. It went to tribunal in 2016. And the decision was then released, and it's taken between 2016 and now. They have revamped every single procedure and policy, and it's incredible, actually, what they've done. Um, and it's been put online in a survey, of, and this is the first time the police, or Toronto police, anybody, have ever um, released any of their policy or procedures uh, um, publicly. So. Um, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty impressive what what, what they've done. What, what gets what gets to me is they never once thought of putting you in protective custody. Well, what, what do they think when they put me in um, a separate cell? Okay. But it's still at, at certain. But at, at it's still um, it's the area like there's there's a. You know, a long hall area where there's a couple of different locations, right? Um, people can still, of course, see you as they go by, and it's still the side where all the women are. And then they then they actually put me in with the women in the women's clothes, and they put me maybe put on women's clothes and underwear, and it's just still makes me. <laughs> do you feel? Do you feel that you would have been safer in a men's prison? I feel I wouldn't have been outed because I pass. See, with transsexual and transgender people, a lot of people pass, don't pass. Um, I'm very fortunate that way. I, I, I pass well. Most people, in fact, say to me when they find out, say, no, you're, you're not trans. And I'm like, yeah, I am. And they're like, wow, like we would have never known. So I feel that if I would have just been treated normally, put in, I would have passed. Nobody would have known. Nothing, not, there would have been no cause for people to point me out in the hall and go, hey, what's that person doing over there? Because I would have looked like everyone else there. But you would have been in protective custody, and that's where they need to know how far you know you have to go before you, you can pass to be in the male prison, but in protective custody. But if they remove mm -hmm. protective custody, then what? I think yeah. they already have, and it's like... Oh, yeah. Well, what do you do now? Like, you know, that, that's so unsafe. Then, then how is the police to know where to put you if there's no protective custody? Well, we, well, it, it, there, there has to be protective custody, but um, okay, there's two levels. There, there's, there's being arrested by the police and being kept in holding until you go to trial, and that was that's in my situation. So, but that just that usually doesn't take three, three, four days. That they, they, it only took that time because they were mucking about with not saying they couldn't find who I, you know, who I belong to and stuff like that. And as I said, I've heard stories from other people where they've said, you know, half of them's upstairs and half of them's downstairs. You know, like half of them's with women, and half of them's downstairs. Like, you know, just nasty, unnecessary comments like that. Um, but basically, what they should be doing is asking the person themselves. Where would you feel more comfortable being, and allowing them to see if you know if they're comfortable passing in in and you know on a male section, 
then that's where they should be. Okay, I'm sorry, I was getting back. Okay, so there's the, while you're in hold thing until you see a, a, a judge, and then if you actually get sentenced, you get sent to um, correctional facilities. So, and that were, they're more long-term. So both have, now both have been adjusted now to say that a transgender person can choose to either, as you said, be somewhere by themselves or to be with the men, to be with the women, to be where they feel best comfortable. So, and now you have to sign, do you have to sign separate papers that you release this consent and you take full responsibility that if something was to happen to you, the police is no longer responsible or whoever? Yeah, that would, that would happen, yeah. That would have to be built into the rules as well, yeah, because yeah, if you decided that, yeah. But um, I think for the most part, uh, you know, from people that I have spoken with that have, because I have spoken to a lot of people, I mean, so many people came to me and talked to me and contacted me, and, you know, I had something happen, I had something, you know. Um, and from, from the most part, though, uh, the people I've spoken to, their problem has not been from other uh, inmates, it's been from the police. Yeah, that's right. They're, yeah. Oh. They're actually treated from, yeah. Well, they yeah. need Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so, again, so everything happens for a reason. So why did such a horrible, horrible thing happen to me? Because I'm probably one of the only people that would have stood up and said, well, obviously I have been so far the only person that has stood up and said, no, 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 nobody else can ever be treated like this. You cannot do this to people. And because I guess I am out, I've always been out. Um, I was out as a lesbian, I've been out as a trans person, and because uh, I work a lot in the media, so it's been necessary for me to be out. So, um, yeah, it was just something I, and again, I mentioned, uh, you know, my parents always ingrained in me, you know, don't ever, ever be one of these people that stand there and go, oh, well, you know, that's too bad. You know, so, you know, sorry, things are like that. If something's being wrong is being done, you get involved because of their experience in World War II. Um, so, yeah, it was just necessary for me to have to have to make sure that, that nobody got treated like that again. Now, were you were, were you one of the? As far as I know, it, there's been many transgendered. Um, um, you know, they used to call them like sex changes, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, males who would get silicone implant breasts and hormones mm -hmm. and treatment, but they were in and out of jail um, and they were like very common. But uh, I, it sounds to me like you might have been one of the very first women mm -hmm. was actually because I don't think, was there any other women before you or? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. There, there have been other other. Um... Um, um, okay, just let me give it. Transgender is just an umbrella term, and in that you can have transsexuals, which are people that actually have had surgery and taken hormones, changed their ID to um, represent as as the other gender. Then you can have uh, uh, people that are consider themselves non-binary or gender queer that they don't have any. Um, they they don't do anything. Out of you know the the like any surgery or taking any hormones, they just feel that they either relate they're somewhere in between the two or you know lean 
more one way or the other or switch back and forth. So there's, and then you have cross dressers and then you know, okay. intersex people. And I mean, you know, it goes, it's a huge long umbrella of people. Um, but, um, yeah, as a, as a transsexual person, I'm a person that has had surgery and has said taken hormones and, and um, done done a lot of, of uh, all my ID and stuff like that. Well, during the transition, uh, when you finally reach to that completion, you're considered a straight male, are you not? Well, a a yes and no. I mean, my body will never be. A genetic male body. Their penal reconstruction is very, very um, badly um, researched. It's it's the other way around. Actually, male to female is far more researched. Um, and as that's and as you you yourself said, they're more more common to commonly known in society because there are so many. There you know there are so there is so much research. Done and for for a male to transition yeah. to a female body, you could I've you know uh, known of people where their bodies were flawless. You would have absolutely no idea um, that they were you know were had once had a male body and now have a female body. Whereas for a, a, a female to male, which is where my category, it's much much more difficult. Um, oh, yeah. You can have. It, you can have pretty much everything done except penal reconstruction is very, very unadvanced. They, um, you know, they're, they're getting a little more nowadays, but pretty much everyone I know that has attempted to have it done has had some really major problems um, with their, their kidneys afterwards and in you know, backing up in body parts and it just doesn't work properly and and even the ones that do have a full penal reconstruction um, you can you can't get erection you still have to use some kind of a, a pump or, or insert of some kind so um, so as far as females male you you know um, that kind of passing, like on, you know, on a completely naked basis, to see a female to male person that's, that's transitioned, and to see them completely naked, um, it's rare to impossible that you that to see one that a female to male that will look exactly the same because it's just not uh, scientifically done yet. No, we just haven't <clears throat> we haven't evolved to that level yet to become mm -hmm. pristine men. Uh, humanity, uh, mankind needs to grow up and mm -hmm. become more sure because right now they're just like little boys of uh, exactly. the planet. And yeah. once we we become to the next level, as we are evolving, you're going to see the changes. You're already seeing it with. Um, uh, the genetic modification with these uh, the P Pfizer and all these things and the whole oh, exactly. now the whole yeah. thing the whole thing about this is these these injections they they're not meant to kill people <laughs> that's not what the agenda is the agenda is to evolve mankind not to kill them <laughs> but this is where this is where the spiritual work must come in because if you're not spiritually ready. 
uh, you won't make it. You'll have to transition, and that's you know, and perhaps maybe the next time around you can come back and, and things. But not everybody's going to make it. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, now yeah. Um, this thing about um, the Gypsy Studio. Uh, you have it here on Small Business Owners Gypsy yes. Studios. You still ha are up and running. Uh, pre- and post-production audio slash video studio, and you do screened at festivals worldwide. Is it still up and running? Is, can you want to explain? Yes, you know, um, Gypsy Studios was um, part of, I had a, a property at Warnerslington, uh, in fact, that um, I had turned into Gypsy Studios. So when all this stuff happened, um, with with the police, uh, as you said, I I went into such uh, uh, um, uh, an emotional mental spiral afterwards. I just um, it, uh, I, I couldn't function properly, and it didn't go away right away. I mean, I said the charges got withdrawn because I refused to plead guilty. Yeah, but it took you like it took me like a year of fighting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, I, 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 um, it was, it was extremely difficult to, uh, yeah, from, from that, from emotional perspective. So I ended up losing that house, um, because oh. like I, said, I just, for about six months, at least a good six months, I, I wasn't functioning at all. I wasn't remembering, you know, to pay my bills. I wasn't remembering to eat. I wasn't remembering, like, I was just a complete basket case. And, uh, yeah, so unfortunately, I, I ended up having to sell Gypsy Studio, that the house that Gypsy Studios was, was located in. I do, though, have all the equipment still, and it is currently sitting in my other property, which is just outside of Toronto. It's called Preston Lake. It's um, oh, it's just beautiful. It's a private lake at Bloomington and Woodbine, so it's really close. In fact, it used to be called GTA when I first when I first acquired it. Um, and it's fifty lots around a private lake, and it's so peaceful and so quiet. And it's preserved by the Toronto Conservation Authority because it's a sacred wetlands. Oh my so, God! You so deserve it, boy. You so it's deserve so. It. <laughs> but the only problem is. The only thing that's on it is like a um, kind of like a, a cabin, like an older fishing cabin sort of thing. So um, my challenge now, what I'm hoping to do is to figure out a way to um, fix that property up or you know, build it up some way that I can actually live there full time. and build. I want to rebuild Gypsy Studios there because all the equipment's there. So, oh. That's my that's my dream to to in the next couple of years is to get it together and be able to rebuild Gypsy Studios up there and, and do more uh, of a video. creative self expression. And the more you creatively self express and create things like this, you don't have to be a breeder to know this. I mean, yeah. and and the more you do that, <clears throat> the more you're dancing with the divine, and the more you're healing yourself. Absolutely, and, and then the world reflects around you, and this is how you change the world. You, you've done a lot of changes to our world. And, I have, you know, and it was such an internal battle, such a force that you know all these symptoms that attacked you on a physical level that you're dealing with, 
And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise that you have five years to live. Who are they? You know, like, you know, how is that? You know, they don't really have any proof. And no. it's all up to you and your mm -hmm. higher self. And this is your spiritual path. What you're doing for humanity is amazing. You're such a blessing to have here on this. And the more you, you know, get into yourself as a complete person comfortable within your body, then you can start creating and be a co-creator with that divine uh, expression that is you, your, your potential. Uh, you know, it, it's unlimited and it's, it's all about your passion and following that. And now's the time. And you know what? You're not retarded, and neither am I. You know, it's time to start living uh, uh, like like we're thriving. Like we're all have to accept. You know, we are retired, and let's start yep. stop being enslaved by all these things. And this yeah, is absolutely. about getting into stepping into your own power and becoming sovereign. And and within your light, this is this is this is your spirituality. With every breath mm -hmm. that we take, this this you know a soul around us is is this plasmic field that reflects us like Alice in Wonderland, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so Yes, and I hope to see more movies. And I would also like I've, I've written a lot of books, and I also want to get eventually into doing movies myself. And are now, you? Oh, good. Eventually, I want to do this absolutely. And and uh, this thing here, a not so very toxic tale. Can you a little bit get into this, please? Can you kind of? Yeah. Um, basically, the what that the house uh, this and studio that I was talking about on on Islington, we had um, road construction done, um, and it was so intense that. Like all the neighbors came running out on the street. All the houses were shaking and shaking and shaking. And my neighbor, her whole front lawn fell like a big sunk sunk hole fell in. The people guy next door to them, their windows shattered. Um, my house, I didn't see any apparent damage, but but we, like I said, we all felt the shaking the day that this started. And a few months went by, and I started feeling not well. And everybody that came into the house would say afterwards, I don't feel very well. And I thought, okay, something strange is going on. And what, what, we, what we ended up finding out was that this massive vibration, um, it was an older house back then that used to have um, radiator heating, hot water rads. You know what that is? Like the hot water pipes? That, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, radiators. Yeah, I have okay. that. Okay. okay, I love it. You got to bleed them, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, still my favorite heating, though, is radiant heating. So, um, it was, as I said, it had all the pipes that, for the radiators and stuff going through the walls. And what we didn't realize was that they, um, there had been a crack or two that, that had happened behind the wall. And water had been slowly seeping into the drywall, which formed black toxic mold. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, I called my insurance company, and the fellow came over. And unfortunately, he didn't know what he was doing. And he put a large hole in the wall, which was the absolute wrong thing to do, and left it open for two weeks um, before he sent someone in to take a look at it. The person that he sent in to take a look at it came in, took one look, and said, oh, my God, who put a hole in the wall? And we told him, and he said, oh, my God, I'm out of here. And we said, are you telling us that we should get out of here? And he said, I'm telling you that it's toxic. 
So um, we had to leave the house. We had to leave everything. And um, it was, yeah, it was a horrible few years. And uh, so we ended up writing a graphic novel about it so that hopefully, again, other people would notice these sort of things before they ended up getting really sick and having major, major problems with their house. But uh, it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time, too, because um, it, they weren't recognized back then. It was, uh, you know, 2003. Yeah. Okay. 2003, and um, yeah, the, the doctors weren't, weren't really recognizing that, that the, you know, there was such a thing as toxic mold even back then, where nowadays, you, you know, you punch it in the computer and you'll get a thousand and one hits about it. So, right. yeah, so we, we wrote the graphic novel. Um, we did start to make it into a film when there is a small clip on online, um, you know, with, I think, the first three minutes and such, and then... Um, one thing led to another, and just the project got abandoned, and never we never picked it back up again. So, but the book is still up there. Okay, now, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, it, it's a good read. It's a good read because it, it uh, again it gives you a lot of knowledge about what you know what to look for, so that you don't end up getting into that sort of situation. Okay, well, please tell us where we can find this book and how we can purchase it. Okay, um, that's a really good question. I'll have to look. Um, it used to be at the women's bookstore, and I can't remember the pages, but I'm not sure if it still is, so I'll have to check it out. It was online as well, but I, I noticed that the site's been taken down, so yeah, to see about taking about putting back up again. Oh, I don't know. Books, January 7, 2019, issue a twisted fairy tale about toxic masculinity. No, no, that doesn't. No, well, you know, it is has been taken down and someone else, yeah. like Lori Miller or someone else did something, and I don't know, but yours is not on here, so... No, I no we, we did, um, as I said, we, we did uh, have it online, and it was actually a free download because we wanted to make sure, again, that you know people got the knowledge that they needed. So uh, I think the person that was running the server must have taken it off. Well... we get it. Mm -hmm. The first three minutes of it is. Um, Not so very toxic tale. Once upon a time, I Okay, I, I got it. It was just going on, but yeah, on IMDb Pro. Uh, yes. And it talks about, there's about actually maybe 17 seconds of it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then whatever other link to it is not there. Nothing else is available. I mean, I could give sure. that thread to people so that they can see it. And sure. Actually, what I'm doing is um, I'm just in the midst of building a website. I have I have uh, my domain. It, it'll be voidkodak.com, um, and so I'll have everything available on that soon. That'd be amazing because that'd be so simple. And yes. you also have when I first met you, you had a booth on uh, vaping, and you had uh, the THC holistic uh, kind of treatments, and yeah. you also have it's something actually, here on. It was a um, sorry. Go ahead. It's a CBD. CBD. Okay. Yes, it's CBD from hemp. So it has some THC, but a very very small amount. It's like less than two percent, but. Um, uh, actually, um, 
endocannabinoid system is something that they discovered that we all have in our bodies, but they only discovered this a few years ago, which is really, really interesting because it's the largest system that we have in our bodies. And um, I can, again, I can, I can shoot you off some diagrams and such, and you can see that we have um, what they call receptor points pretty much throughout our entire bodies, in our brains, in our lungs, in our organs, in our skin, and pretty much every tissue you have in your body, you will have a CBD receptor point. And what I got into was actually my lupus, it was just after the, the police incident, I, was, I went into such a bad flare-up, terrible flare-up, it was like, it, it, this was like five years. I couldn't do, hardly do anything, um, and I think, you know, as you said, part of it was definitely emotional. Part of it was physical, probably stemming from emotional. Um, and um, I, the doctor said, "You know what? Let's 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 give you a course of chemo." And I was four. I don't have cancer, do I? And he said, "No, but um, we're hoping that that the chemo will will you know." trick your immune system, like give it a jolt and trigger it maybe because basically lupus is your, your system is attacking itself. So um, I thought to myself, that just, just sounds like a crazy idea. And so I had two, two, two of my specialists were discussing this, how they were going you know, to try this experiment. And I thought, this just doesn't sound right to me. Why would I poison myself even further? <laughs> so I started researching, 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 and I found out about... Um, this, I guess this, you know, I started this four or five years ago, so I found out about you know, their discovery about the endocannabinoid system. And I started researching uh, CBD, and I um, developed a product, which um, I've helped myself. I didn't have the chemo, and I'm here, and I'm doing better now. Um, you know, I'm having still having some challenges, but, you know, I'm also 68 years old, and been living with lupus since I was you know, a baby. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, my doctors, like, again, for, I don't know how many years they've told me, oh, you're on board time, you're on board time. It's like, yeah, okay, that's, um, well, I keep doing what I'm doing while I can do it. You were being bullied. That's, that, those are threats. I know, it's horrible things doctors can say to you sometimes, eh? Yeah. Psychological yeah. bullying. I mean, there's yeah. nothing you can you can't do. It's basically, people have to do it on a physical level for you to be able to charge them. Mm -hmm. so there's a yeah, lot. Always. Yeah. So exactly. we're not quite there yet. <laughs> no, we're not quite there yet. No, no, no. So uh, yeah. So I yeah. Um, so I basically have to be able to help myself and uh, anybody that you know knows my door's always open and uh i've been able to help a lot of people a lot of really sick people that were told the same sort of thing as me sorry we don't really have any other alternative for you and what exactly are you selling are you like making, mm -hmm. making cookies or what are you doing no, well it's an oil um it's uh, I, I, I um it, it comes from the hemp like i said so it's hemp plant and it's you know kind of pressed into an oil form and you know, I have developed my own proprietary formula um, you mix it with what we call absorption absorption oils other oils to help your system absorb it and I've developed um, my own uh, proprietary formula of absorption oils that work really really well 
and you just put uh, some drops under your tongue. You hold it there as long as you possibly can. You do that twice a day. Um, you, depending on the strength you take depends on what you're treating. You know, if you're treating, you know, I have some people that use it to treat, you know, a cold. I have some people that are using it to treat severe cancer that they were told they were going to die two years ago. And they're still here. Um, in fact, I have one fellow who's got such a rare cancer that he's pretty much on chemo all the time. And his doctors are so blown away that um, he's going to a conference, I think, next month. And he's asked me, can I tell them? Can I tell them how I've done it? Because he's convinced that, that he only started getting better when he started using my products. So, which you run, actually, that, that the, the, where we met, that day that we were at that conference. Um, if, I don't know if you recall, I had a, uh, a door prize. And, and I was offering, I think, stick bottles to whoever won the door prize. And it was won by a fellow, and this was his dad, who was really ill, um, or this was his partner's dad that was very, very ill. So yeah, so he said, you know, can I give it to him? And I said, yeah, for sure, no problem. So he ended up connecting me with him, and as I said, this, this fellow writes me now on a regular basis, and he's uh, he's just so pleased, and I'm so pleased that he's feeling well and doing better, and. Now, that's just one of my stories. I mean, I, uh, this goes for animals and humans. Actually, animals have even a larger cannabinoid endocannabinoid system than us humans have. So, so you it's, know what? Uh, this is something that we weren't even going to cover. So this is a bonus for you no. all out there uh, that wasn't even part of the topic. And there's so much more, and I would love to have you on again for a second episode of sure. second season. You know, we can discuss many more things. And for those who really want to reach out to you, www.hempoilforyourhealth.com. So it would be uh, www.hempoil uh, for, and then you are. H E A L T H dot com. So it's it's the number four, and so and then uh, hemp oil for your health. So that's where you can find and and purchase these products. And also, um, what else? Yes, you know um, the you're also a columnist, uh, a writer uh, mm -hmm. for Buzz Magazine. Um, would you be able to give us a little tidbit on that and what Buzz Magazine mm -hmm. is and where we can find yeah. columns and what are they about? Okay, Buzz Magazine is um, published by Inspired Media. It's, I believe, the largest and the longest running LGBTQ... Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's... Pink Pages is the longest. Um, it's, uh, I think, the largest LGBTQ plus magazine. Um and it's available online and used to be available in print as well um it got the print that got stopped during COVID. i'm not sure if we're going back to print i hope so because everybody loves to you know have that i mean i know everything's digital now but it's still it was, a, it was just like a you know one of those small glossies that you could keep in your pocket and it's just always good to have everybody used to love reading the, the magazine um I have a column that I basically just like to highlight um, trans talent. Um, as you mentioned, I've done a lot of work in the past 
um, it, it, with film festivals and such and broadcast. When I started, um, there was the, the trans programs were work that were about trans people, not by trans people. And there were films that were being done about us, like very much like the same as, you know, with gay and lesbian. It used to always be, you know, people from outside of the community looking in, doing films about the community. And so much, it was very much the same for the trans community. Um, and even the work was being picked for us, not by us. And um, that's when I started working with, the, initially the Inside Out Festival became the first trans person to be invited onto the programming committee of a, a gay and lesbian festival um, and was able to start choosing trans work, you know, so, um, and work by trans people. So it changed, like, uh, from night and day, you know, from, as I said, instead of, it, instead of it being work about us, it was now being work by us, and it has such a completely different aesthetic, and it, it's so completely different because it's us telling us our stories um, and not just, you know, we, we, we took that from um, initially, of course, you know, everybody wants to tell their coming out story. I knew when I did this, that, and I did that. And then we started expanding and some much more interesting things like our trans histories and, you know, different ways that we relate romantically and, you know, just different venues about, not just about being trans, but about living trans sort of thing. So, yeah, it just changed the face again of, of the entire, um, you know, concept of, uh, of being able to, to, you know, to, to, to screen our own work um, and to play ourselves. I mean, as you know, that's become a humongous thing as well now that, you know, Trans people, gay and lesbian people, you know, we can portray ourselves in films and movies. We don't, it's we don't need authenticity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Did I go off track oh, again? No, no, not at all. It's just that you have so much to talk about. Uh, I'm thinking, should so I much. make this into two episodes? Because we're going a little bit. Like we're an hour and a half now, and there's oh, still oh, not. No, no, there's still more about that. Oh, I, I, I really want to talk about. It's 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 like I, I believe we're gonna have to take it over to another episode. Sounds good. And Sounds then good. Um, you also have a YouTube channel. Hopefully, we can find this on there as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, uh, YouTube.com slash user slash B O Y D K O D A K. Well, I'm gonna have wherever this might find you, folks. Uh, I'm gonna have these links down down below or wherever the description box might find you. And in in, in closing, let's let's do this. Do you want me to to kind of uh, play a little bit of of uh, something that you were singing here, Carrie and Boyd's? Uh, wait a minute. It's uh, with Cherry Chestnut about three years ago from your YouTube channel. And this is Send Me to the Moon. And I'm just going to put a little bit of what your voice might sound like. And if you want to see him play uh, the percussions and, and, you know, it's just beautiful. So just a little bit and then we'll get back to talking, you know, in closing. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. 
I didn't have uh, Cherry Chestnut's permission, so this is why I just cut it like that. I wanted to hear your voice. And folks, you. if you want to see and hear more of it, just go to the YouTube channel. Uh, your, you know, and uh, your YouTube channel. I don't know what. what hang on, what it, what it's called. Um, what's your YouTube channel called? <laughs> I think it's just called Boyd Kodak. Oh, yes, you're right, Boyd Kodak. Okay, so if you want to find, just look look up Boyd Kodak, and there'll be, you know, then you can look, see all the videos here. Great. In closing, and lots more to come. Yes, absolutely, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Is there something you would like to leave us with or something that you would like to, to share with us in closing? Mm. I guess just, um, well, thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, I guess just to reinforce what you said, it's time now for me to, you know, put to bed all of my my political and activist work for a while and uh, focus on on my creative and artistic work which is really important to me that's the work i want to do with my life because i still feel that it's also going to have an effect in in helping people to learn and understand and accept one another that's that's part of my my goal in writing my musical as well yeah, keep 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 tuned because there's lots more to come. Like I said that the creative works of Boyd Kodak is going to be filling up my life for hopefully as long as as long as uh, I'm lucky enough to to have left. Yeah. And I can be sharing it. You've been such a blessing for us all here on this planet. And beyond, the throat, the galaxy is rippled out to, to knowing and recognizing your light and, and how much you have to share with others and empower us all. And, and you've done so much. You're a trailblazer. And I really admire that and I honor that. And it's been such a wonderful, wonderful pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. Same here. Back. Stiddle. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.